All right, praise God. That was almost as good as Eunice. <laughs> Eric, yeah, that was great. Praise God. Okay, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22, and we're gonna get right into God's word. But 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. Very excited to be wrapping up 2 Peter chapter 2 today. It's been a very uh, eye-opening, enjoyable journey through this letter. But if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. This is God's word. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow or pig after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time, and you are here with us. You are holy, and we want to just submit ourselves to you and to your word. We just want to open our hearts wide to your teachings in this word, and we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us conviction, that you would give us faith. So Lord God, please speak, Father God, today. And please guide us, Father, bring us, if we are not on the right path, bring us onto that path. If we are already there, then Father, just move us further along with conviction and joy down your will, what you have for us. So Lord God, we thank you so much. Thank you for everyone joining us here and everyone online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. It's a joy to look at God's word again with you. We are finally gonna be wrapping up 2 Peter chapter two. I know it's been a little bit of a slog. We're taking a little longer. But so far in 2 Peter chapter two, Peter the shepherd has been painting a scathing picture of the false teachers who had come into the churches that he oversaw. But he did not pull any punches. And the vivid images and words that Peter has been using leave no doubt what Peter thinks about these false teachers and false teachings. So Peter, why don't you really tell us how you feel? Well, he has been, right? And not only that, but he's been telling us what God really thinks about these false teachers. And this is what God thinks about these false teachers. But their character is utterly corrupt. Their teachings are deceptive and destructive. And then finally, God's severest judgment is coming. It's gonna come upon them. And that basically summarizes all of chapter two. So those three points, Peter just hammers throughout this chapter. And throughout chapter two, Peter just cycles through those three same topics again and again. So if you're wondering, you know, every Sunday for the last few weeks, it just seems like the same things kind of come up. Well, that was intentional. Peter just cycling through these same three topics. So for example, in the first three verses, Peter gives a quick thumbnail sketch of the false teachers. Again, he said their character is utterly corrupt, 
Their teachings are deceptive and destructive. And finally, God's severe judgment is coming on them. And then in verses 4 through 10, the first part, he goes more in depth into God's judgment. It's coming. It is certain. It's going to come upon the false teachers. And he gave vivid examples of why this is certain. He talked about God's judgment on the fallen angels and then on the whole world through the flood and then finally Sodom and Gomorrah. So maybe you remember that. But he just went through God's judgment. And then in verses 10 through 16, he goes back to the character of the false teachers. And now he's going more in depth into that. And their character was not just bad behavior, but it was an entire way of life. Remember that? We looked at that last week. But it was a way. And in the Bible, a way can mean a road or a highway, but symbolically it meant a manner of life, the way you're living your life, the overall course of your life. And Peter said, these false teachers, their way was the way of Balaam. It was the way of destruction. And in contrast, believers, true believers, they are on the right way. So we covered all of that last week. But do you see that? He's just repeating the same things again. He's talking about the character of the false teachers again. And then finally, today, in the verses we just read, 17 through 22, he circles back one more time, and now he's going in-depth into the seductive teachings of the false teachers. So now he's going back to their teachings again. And so you see, Peter is just repeating and expanding on the same three topics again and again throughout chapter 2. So what were they? The character of the false teachers are utterly corrupt. Their teachings are deceptive and destructive. And finally, God's severest judgment is coming on them. And so you get the sense that Peter really wants us to hear this. Amen? He really wants believers to learn these things. Why? So that we can discern these deceptive teachers and their teachings. Because they're coming. In fact, Peter said they're coming and they're already in the church. So he wants us to know these things. He wants us to have discernment. And that's why he just repeated himself over and over again. He didn't want us to miss the point. Right? He's trying to make sure. Okay, I'm like that with my kids. I just repeat myself endlessly, right? Where I don't know where Josh is right there. But I just repeat myself endlessly. Why? Because I want them to get it. And so this is Peter. He's a good father. He's a good dad. He's like, I want you to get this. And here's why. It's because so many believers, especially today, don't have discernment. We lack discernment, brothers and sisters. You know, last week I shared that tragic news story about the toddler who was just with her family at an Airbnb in Florida, and then she came across some powder, she touched it, put it in her mouth, and then I believe a short time later, she was dead. They found her dead on the bed. And there was a lot that went wrong in that story. None of it was the family's fault. I mean, Airbnb was at fault. They had this huge party a few days prior where adults brought all these drugs into that Airbnb. But the point is, is that that baby died. And the reason why that baby died is because the toddler lacked discernment. If you were to just look at the baby herself. She didn't know what was right in front of her and she didn't know what it was, how dangerous it was. So she put it in her mouth. In the same way, a lot of believers are like that toddler. Like spiritual babies, they lack discernment. And they don't seem to understand the danger that is oftentimes right in front of them. See, these days, you can't just go to a church. You can't just show up somewhere going, hey, I like the music. You need to pay attention. I mean, you always needed to, but all the more these days. We live in the last days. 
But so many Christians go to church and they don't even know what is right in front of them. So whether it's neo-paganism, we looked at that, cultural Marxism, moralistic religion, worldly religion, therapeutic religion, progressive religion, gay religion, there's so much more. But they end up following these false teachings, getting connected to false teachers, and then destruction. It's destruction. And so Peter, being a good shepherd, he knew that. And so again, with the most vivid and almost angry terms, right? When you read 2 Peter chapter 2, he sounds almost angry. I believe it's God speaking through him. God sounds almost angry. And the reason is because Peter is saying, watch out. He watch out for false teachers. This is what their character is like. He repeats it. This is what their teachings are like. He repeats it again. And this is God's judgment that is coming upon them. He repeats it. And so if I were to give an application for all of chapter 2, if I were to kind of summarize all of chapter 2, and here's the application, it would be this. Learn to have discernment, brothers and sisters. Learn it. Be built up in it. Sharpen your discernment. And how? Repeatedly going over again and again God's word. You become so familiar with God's word and what it says that the moment you come across error and deception, boom, you know it. I don't know if you guys have ever worked at a bank, but that's what I heard. I had a family member, uh, a distant family member who used to work at a bank. And she said, well, maybe she told me. Maybe I read it online. I can't remember. <laughs> Sometimes I conflate these things. Oh, yeah, this person said it. I might have read it online. But a banker learns how to identify counterfeits. How? Because she has touched a $20 bill thousands of times over, right? I mean, every day, hundreds of times, she's touching $20 bills, $20 bills. Over the lifetime of her career, she will touch it 10,000 times. And so the moment a counterfeit comes across, boom, that's not real. Yeah, I know what a $20 bill feels like. I know the feel of it, the weight of it, the texture. I know what it feels like. In my sleep, I know what it is. This is a counterfeit. And so in the same way, if you want to build discernment, it's far more fruitful to master just one thing. To become an expert in the word of God than to try to master a hundred things, like all those false teachings out there. I mean, yes, you got to be aware. That's why we touch on it here and there. But more than focusing on all of that, master just one thing, brothers and sisters. Go over the word of God and what it says over and over and over again. Expand your knowledge, deepen your knowledge every time. Just like Peter did in chapter 2. He just went over the same thing over and over. Each time expanding. Why? Because that's the only way you're going to have discernment against false teachers and false teachings. And so that's what I believe Peter is saying in chapter 2. Simply by the way he laid it out. He's just saying, get discernment. Get discernment. And so today we're going to see Peter circling back one more time. Okay, we're going to wrap up chapter 2 today. But circling back one more time and addressing the seductive teachings of false teachers. I know, we already looked at this. But now he goes much more in depth. He's going to kind of really nail it now. And in our verses today, we see the marks of seductive teaching. Okay, what are the qualities of seductive teaching? The marks. Number two, the results of seductive teaching. And then finally, the antidote for seductive teaching. And because Peter says so much in these verses, we're only going to look at the marks today. That alone will take a while, or at least a sermon length. So the marks, the results, and the antidote of seductive teaching. So today we'll look at the marks of seductive teaching. So look at verse 17. So here in verse 17, Peter 
gives another picture of the false teachers. See, he really wants us to get this, right? He's giving all these different pictures. He's using all these analogies. And then he shares three marks of their teaching to support that picture. Okay, I'll say that again. He gives us a picture of these false teachers and their teachings, and then he gives us three marks of their teachings to support that picture. Okay, what do I mean? Well, if you look at verse 17, Peter said, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So this is a very dramatic picture. So for people living in the Middle East, especially ancient times, even today, they would have understood this very well. But in that region, it's very arid, it's a dry desert. And so if you're traveling a long distance, let's say in ancient times, you know that the most precious thing you need is what? Water, right? Water. (laughs) Water. And so you need a spring if you're going to draw water. You need a well or a spring. And so if you're traveling long distances through that desert and a traveler comes upon a spring, they're going to be like, whoa, praise God, right? This is life. It is a sign of life. To make it more maybe relevant today, this would be kind of like you're driving on a long desert highway for hours and hours, right? The whole day, your gas tank is almost empty, and you're getting scared now, right? There's nowhere. There's nothing inside. And then suddenly on the horizon, you see a bright, shiny AM, PM gas station. And right away, you're like, yes, right? Life, relief, 40-ounce jugs of Gatorade, whatever you want, right? I'm just going to, man, right? And then you walk in there, nothing, It's an abandoned store. It looked new and open on the outside, but on the inside, it's just a ghost town, gas station. That's what Peter is saying here. These are the false teachers. They look like springs of life, but when you actually come to them, you begin to learn from them, they have no life. Like a spring in a desert, you're like, finally, life. But there's only death. In fact, they have no spiritual substance. They look spiritually alive. They're very spiritually active, but there's no spiritual substance. And so the moment a storm or difficulties come, Peter says, what happens to them? Well, they and their followers, they get blown away. And not only blown away, but Peter said they get blown into utter darkness, which is a picture of God's judgment, hell. He's talking about hell. They're going to be blown into hell eventually. So that's the picture of the false teachers is that clear? And then Peter then explains why they're like this by then giving us three marks of their teachings. Peter's saying, this is who they are, right? They're springs with no water. They're like that gas station. It's abandoned. There's nothing there. It's just death. Here's why. And then he gives three marks of their teaching. So first, so we're just going to go through these marks today. First, they boast loudly, but they have no understanding. So 2 Peter 2.18. Again, this should sound familiar. He's circling back. For speaking loud boasts of folly. If you remember, if you were here maybe a couple weeks ago, this is almost the same thing Peter said earlier. Just a few verses back. Verses 10 and 11. Look there. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So here's Peter circling back again. He's just saying the same thing. Whenever these false teachers taught anything, they were arrogant and they were ignorant. 
They were arrogant and ignorant. In other words, they didn't know what they were talking about, and they were confident in talking about these things they didn't know anything about. And here in verses 10 and 11, Peter gave a very specific example of this arrogant ignorance. So what do you mean, Peter? What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, these false teachers were blaspheming and pronouncing judgment on the glorious ones. So I remember, we talked about this last week, actually, and we kind of uh, skipped it because we were um, focusing on some other things during family worship. But now going back to it, the glorious ones is most likely a reference to fallen angels. He just briefly, let me explain, but most Bible scholars say this is not good angels, but these are fallen angels. Why? Because 2 Peter is almost the exact same letter as the letter of Jude. So they're kind of like sister letters. And when you look in Jude, you get almost the exact same statement, but you get more details on what was going on. So let's look at Jude, Jude 1, 8 through 10. It says, yet in like manner, these people, these false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Do you guys notice that? That's the exact same phrase as in 2 Peter, right? They blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, so now Jude is giving us more details. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these false teachers, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So thank you, Jude. Jude gave us more information there. So what is this ignorant arrogance? What, what are we talking about? Well, based on what Jude told us, these glorious ones are fallen angels because even good angels like the archangel Michael wouldn't blaspheme the devil, right? Satan. But these false teachers who know nothing, who are far lesser than the archangel Michael, who are far like worse sinners. I mean, Michael isn't even a sinner. He's a holy angel. They blaspheme things that they have no knowledge about. And so they rebuke the enemy. They would blaspheme the enemy, say all kinds of things about the enemy. And the reason why is because they believe that they had a certain kind of authority that they actually didn't have. So this is what all of this means, brothers and sisters. The mark, the first mark of seductive teaching is a teaching that is loud. It is ignorant. It is arrogantly ignorant. And, the, and so they believe they had this authority, so they even blasphemed fallen angels. And this elevated authority they had, they believed, gave them the right to pronounce things they shouldn't pronounce, to denounce things that they had no right denouncing. Again, even things like angels. And so Jude, verse 8, even said they reject authority, specifically the authority of God's word. Why? Because I got the authority, right? I'm so great. I'm elevated. And so if God's word contradicted what I say, then just delete it, cut it out, ignore it. Yeah, I'll change it. And so this is one of the clearest and most devastating marks of false teaching. This is one of the clearest signs. You go to any church, you go talk to any you know, spiritual leader, you watch anything online. If you see this, run. Because this is the clearest sign of false teaching. 
but they claim to have a higher authority that is not located in the word of God. In fact, they believe that they have an authority that is even elevated above the word of God. They might not say it, but that's what they really believe. And the reason is because the highest authority in their minds is located where? In them. Okay, it's in that leader. It's located in that person's eloquence. Do you see the way I speak? Do you see the abilities I have? It's located in their revelation from God. Don't you know the revelations I have? You don't have these revelations. I do. I do. I'm anointed. The domineering personality, sometimes it's just the sheer force of their personality, right? Don't you see I'm the loudest voice in the room? Right now, I gotta be careful. I am the loudest voice. But it's like, you're like, are you talking about yourself, Roy? No, I'm not. <laughs> but sometimes it's the loudest voice in the room. It's just the force of their personality. Now, don't misunderstand. I do believe people have a level of spiritual authority through God's calling on their life. I do believe when God calls, there's authority there. I believe God does anoint people for a particular task. If you're anointed by God, in other words, if you are filled by the Holy Spirit to do certain things for God, you, are, you have authority. If there's a particular way God is working in your life, there's authority. So don't get me wrong. There is genuine authority in all, in all those things. But here's the point. That authority is still underneath and in service to the authority of God's word. Brothers and sisters, you, please don't miss this. This is so important. Otherwise, you're going to get caught up in false teaching. You're going to go to terrible, terrible churches and ministries that are going to lead you astray. But in the scriptures, right here in 2 Peter, it's so clear. Regardless of whatever authority God has given you, that authority is always underneath the authority of God's word. Always. So the safest place for you to belong to is a church that consistently and continuously pushes the Bible forward as the highest authority. I know sometimes people get annoyed by that. Why, why do you make such a big deal of the Bible? Well, don't you know it's for your own protection? But the safest place that you can go to and belong to is a church or a ministry or a community where they are constantly pushing the Bible forward as the highest authority. Don't you know the Bible, the Bible is the highest authority? Don't you know? Okay, we all answer to the word of God. Don't you know we're all submitted to this? Including the pastor, including some anointed leader, it doesn't matter who you are, we're all submitted to this. And I know some people struggle with that. But I don't like the Bible. There are parts of it I don't like. But again, the reason why churches do this, good churches, well, there's many reasons, but one reason is for your protection. This is why we do this, is for your protection. See, if you've ever been abused or hurt by spiritual authority, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I almost said raise your hand. I don't know why. But, but if you've been abused or hurt by spiritual authority, maybe some churches or ministries in the past, the best friend you have is the Bible. Well, it's God. God's your best friend. But it's God speaking through the Bible. That's the best friend you have, and that's the greatest weapon you have against spiritual authority and spiritual abuse. Against spiritual abuse, I should say. And here's the reason. It's because as long as everyone, including the leaders, are submitted to the authority of the Bible, they are held accountable to the Bible. Amen? They're held accountable. By anyone who has a Bible and knows what it says, for example, like you. Don't you have a Bible? Don't you read it? Don't you know what it says? Then it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the most anointed leader, the most loud prophet or pastor leading a huge ministry. They are under the authority of the Bible. And if you have a Bible and you know what it says, they're accountable to that. You can call them out. You can hold them accountable. 
A 12-year-old kid can hold them accountable. And why? Because the word of God is the highest authority. And if they refuse to submit to that authority, then ignore them. I'm telling you right now, church, just ignore them. (laughs) Ignore them, or better yet, approach them to show them their error, and if they don't, Listen, then tell it to the other leaders. They will be disciplined. They will be even removed. Why? Because this is the highest authority. Nobody's above it. You know, I've said this before, but even as I've met with people and people kind of ask about our church and the way we're structured, and I, and I have no qualms telling them, I have zero authority apart from the word of God. For now, I'm the only pastor, so I make it a point that it's me, right? Me. I'm the only pastor at this church for now. We have elders, we have other leaders, but I'm the only pastor. In fact, I started this church, but who cares, right? Even for a person who starts a church and then pastors it his entire life, I don't care who you are, they have no authority apart from the word of God. I have zero authority. Now, I know God has called me to pastor this church, so in that calling, I have a level of authority, but again, it's underneath the authority of the word of God. Again, the word of God that you carry around. I'm underneath that. And the moment I step outside of what the Bible says or clearly implies, then I have no authority. I have zero authority. So for example, I have no authority whatsoever to come into your house and say, hey, you know your your living room? I don't like the way you arranged it. Can you just like change it? Why? Because we're going to start having CG in your living room. Next Friday, we're coming. So just change up your living room. I have no authority to say that. Like, Like, who am I, right? I have no authority to come to you and say, hey, show me your MP3s. I want to see your MP3s. Taylor Swift? You have a lot of Taylor Swift, right? Delete. I have no authority. Show me your Netflix account right now. Show it to me. Hundreds of hours of K-drama? Are you kidding me? I'm shutting down your account, right? I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but these are what ministries have done. I've literally heard of campus ministries. I don't know. I don't know why campus ministries get into this, but they've literally gone into closets of people. Okay, you're a member now of our group. I'm going to go through your closet. (laughs) Nope, nope. They're throwing clothes out. You're like, are you kidding me? That's my favorite shirt. That's sinful. Now, that's how my, that might sound ridiculous. Now, don't get me wrong, please. Based on the word of God, of course, I should encourage you as a pastor to not waste your life. Maybe even repeatedly say that. <laughs> to make certain choices that glorify God. To even exercise church discipline if necessary. Of course, that is in the word but I don't have any authority to make choices for you. I mean, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just a guy who stands up here and teaches the Bible once a week and does a lot of church stuff, right? I have no authority apart from the word of God. And Peter says, this is exactly what false teachers reject. Why? Because I'm so special. I'm anointed, don't you know? I get direct revelations from God. And, And they might, right? They might, but that's still an authority lesser than the word of God. But because they have rejected that, they are loud, they are bold in their teachings, and the Bible says foolishness, it's folly, it's just arrogant ignorance. But if you ever question their authority, watch out. Okay, this is where spiritual abuse happens. It's because there's some guy, he thinks he's so anointed and his authority is above everything else, and then you cross him or her, you better watch out. Okay, they will make you pay. They will shut you down. Based on whose authority? What right do you have? Amen? You are under the word of God. Just like me. And I have the word, by the way. It's not in Latin. 
It's not in Greek and Hebrew. I have an English Bible. I know what it says. <laughs> I'm calling you out. <laughs> of course, do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. But, but they are held accountable. So that is the first mark of false teaching. It is a loud boasting based on some sort of self-declared authority, but it has no authority. It has no understanding. If you see that, run. Okay, here's the second mark. It's, teaching, it's a teaching that offers spiritual food but it only tempts the flesh. It tempts the flesh. So look at verse 18. Peter says, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So false teachers with their false teachings entice, that word can also be tempt. They're tempting people. So again, they look like they're giving life, right? They're teaching the word, but they're really just tempting the flesh. Who are they tempting? Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Okay, that's a little confusing, so let me just kind of unpack that. Those who are barely escaping, this is referring to new converts. These are backslidden Christians, worldly Christians, just Christians who are immature. And they are barely escaping from those who live in error. Okay, who is that? Well, these are referring to non-believers in the world. They live in error, right? So these are immature Christians. Maybe they're backslidden, they're new converts, they're worldly. And they're barely escaping the world. That's what Peter is saying. Those people in the world. And these are the ones that false teachers target. This is who they go after, brothers and sisters. Again, Peter's just circling back what he said earlier, or all throughout this chapter. Because earlier he mentioned sensual teaching, the teachings of Balaam that caused the Israelites to commit sexual immorality in Numbers 31. We won't go into that story, but you can read it on your own. He was a false prophet for hire, and not only did he come to condemn Israel, which God switched to a blessing, but later he tried to ruin them by tempting them to sexual immorality. These are the false teachers. They always target the flesh of immature believers. So you know what, brothers and sisters? The less mature you are, the bigger target you are. This is one reason, good reason, to try to grow in your faith, grow in maturity. Because if you don't, then you're a big target for false teachers. This is who they come after. And isn't this so true? You know, one time I was watching this video of young people pouring out of a popular mega church where they preach this kind of prosperity gospel, prosperity gospel light. It's not like totally in your face, but it's clearly that. And all these young people were pouring out and this interviewer was just kind of stopping them and asking them, hey, um, just wanted to, you know, talk to you for a moment. You go to this church and they're like, yeah, I go to the church. Uh, do you mind if I ask you some questions about what you believe, the Bible and faith? And I kid you not, I, I'm not going to give any examples, but what they said was a buffet of error. I couldn't count after a while, like how many errors there were. And it was just soaked in the culture's values. I mean, just talking about all kinds of things, right? Saying they believed in all kinds of things, approving all kinds of things. None of it in the Bible or even against the Bible. And so you could say these are the people who are barely escaping the error of the world, if that. Again, these are the people the false teachers target. Now, I don't know if the leadership in that big popular megachurch are false teachers. If they keep preaching that false gospel, they are false teachers. But they're targeting people like that. They're targeting people like that. And the reason why is because false teachers target the flesh. Why? Because, well, first of all, there's two reasons. They're driven by the flesh. This is what they are driven by. The sinful appetites within them. This is why Peter continues to use animal metaphors. 
We're going to look at this more next week. But whenever he talked about these false teachers, he talks about animals. It's kind of funny, right? He talked about dogs and pigs and, and wild beasts and senseless donkeys, right, who suddenly talk. I mean, he's talking about animals. Why? Because like an animal, they're driven by their instincts, their natural appetites. Yeah, animals, they don't have to go to school to look for food. They just naturally want to look for food. Yeah, they don't have to learn to desire sex. They just want sex. They want immediate gratification. They are driven by the flesh. So these are the false teachers. In the same way, they're like these animals. They're driven by the flesh. And because that's them, that's who they target. See, that's what they're all about. That's what they see. Oh yeah, all the fleshly stuff, right? All the stuff that's in my unregenerate nature, my old self. Okay, my desire for instant gratification. You know, just gorging on food and wanting immediate sex and all this stuff, right? Joy and pleasure. Yeah, that's what I'm going to target in others because that's what I go after. So that's one reason. Here's the other reason. It's obvious. It's easier. <laughs> it's so much easier to tempt the flesh than to stir up the soul to God. Amen? That's why they target that. It's because it's easier. You're going to get a far bigger response if you deliver messages week after week on how to get more money. Okay, how many churches just have series on that after, one after another, how to sleep with whoever you want? Not happy in your marriage? We'll help you get a divorce. You want to meet this person and commit fornication? Yeah, we'll, we'll help you do that, but turn the other way, right? We won't talk about that. We'll show you how to do all this, how to do what you want but still be a Christian. And then they sprinkle a little Bible on top to make it acceptable in church. I like what this one person said. It's like sprinkling powdered sugar on a turd. But that's what, that's what it is. Helen liked that. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's like sprinkling powdered sugar on a turd. Yeah, just a little Bible. Here you go. Bon appetit. And all the while, true believers sitting in their churches starve because they're not being fed the true nourishment of the word of God. So hopefully for most of us, all of this sounds obvious. Hopefully for many of us, we can spot these kinds of false teachers and this appeal to the flesh right away. Hopefully, I pray we can. But then Peter goes into a particular way the false teachers tempt the flesh of believers. So he kind of gives this general statement. This is, you know, mark number two. This kind of appeal to the flesh, the sensual teaching. But then he hones in on a particular way false teachers do that. A particular way they tempt the flesh of believers. And this one is not so obvious. And this brings us to our third mark. So the second mark and the third mark, they're very similar. They kind of overlap. And so the third mark of false teaching is they target the flesh of immature believers. How? By offering them freedom. Although they cannot set anyone free. See, that's an appeal to the flesh. They're offering a kind of freedom. Although they themselves cannot set anyone free. So this is the third mark, and we're going to close with this. But in 2 Peter 2.19, it says, They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So this freedom that the false teachers offered was a freedom from God's law. This is what Peter's talking about. Not the true freedom that Christ offers. Amen? So he's not talking about that true freedom Christ offers, which is the freedom to do God's will. That brings life. So if you're, if you're ever wondering what's a false definition of freedom, it's just do whatever you want. Who cares? And here's the true definition. is the freedom to do God's will, which brings life. 
And the false teachers offer the false kind, and then of course Jesus always offers the true kind. If I could use an analogy of playing the piano, this is the way I see it. But the freedom of the false teachers was basically like the freedom to never practice your piano, to not go to lessons, and do whatever you want. Whenever lesson time comes, this is what I actually did, this is why I can't play the piano today, is my mom said, we paid good money for you, Roy, to learn the piano, and every time there was a lesson, you ran and hid. I was a little kid. <laughs> I wasn't doing that as a college student. But it's like, I, I ran and hid. And she's like, we couldn't find you, right? Sometimes I would just shoot out the back door, right? <laughs> and so here I am. Was I free? I was free. But now I can't play the piano. <laughs> I don't know anything. So that's the freedom of the false teachers. Do whatever you want. Neglect God's law. Ignore it. Why? It's your life. Which ultimately ends in bondage. But then the freedom that Christ offers is based on a loving trust that he knows best. And because you have this loving trust in Christ, you willingly submit to what he wants. For example, practicing the piano, right? Going to your lessons every day or every week, even though you don't want to, but you'll still do it. Why? Could you just trust him? He says, this is good for you. And then you do that over and over, and then one day, you know what you get? You guys know who can play the piano? Who can play the piano? You guys know, finally, one day you sit down, right? you just have this freedom. It's like, how do you do that? I just ran away. I, don't, I can't play. See, I'm in this bondage, right? I'm limited. I'm in a bondage, a kind of bondage where I sit at a piano, I can't do anything. It's just keys to me. But somebody who actually submitted to the loving guidance of a parent, let's say, or, or God, you ultimately get this true freedom to play beautiful music. See, that's the difference. So on the surface, the false teachers offer that kind of freedom, the freedom to play beautiful music with your life. So they're offering that too. They're like, hey, f follow us. You're gonna get freedom. By the way, you don't even have to follow God's law. And we'll get into this more next week, but they were denying that God's judgment was coming. They denied the second coming of Christ. They actually even perverted the gospel. It actually says that in chapter three. They twisted Paul's teachings, which, which are sometimes hard to understand, Peter said. But they were twisting the gospel message of grace. But they were twisting that. They were denying God's coming judgment. And they're saying, you're free. You're free. Come follow us. You'll learn how to play beautiful music. So they're promising all this, right? But in reality, Peter said, it's really going to just enslave you. You're just going to be stuck in your old sinful nature. And really, it's an enslavement that's an inability to obey. Okay, that's the enslavement Peter's talking about. It's an inability to obey and enjoy God's will for your life. Over time, as you're following them, you just cannot obey God. You're an utter slave to your sinful nature. But hey, you got to do whatever you wanted, right? You get to go run and play, right? Live your life. And this subtle rejection of God's law in the name of freedom, it actually has a name. And I believe this is what Peter's talking about here. Peter didn't use this name. This name came much later in the 1600s, 1500s. But it actually has a name. This kind of freedom to do whatever you want, freedom from God's law, is antinomianism. Okay, antinomianism. Anti means against, right? Namas means law. So you're against the law. You're against God's law. And as we march deeper into the last days, Jesus actually said antinomianism, he didn't use that word, but he called it lawlessness, but he said, this is going to be a bigger problem than legalism. Antinomianism. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, lawlessness will be increased in the last days and the love of many, many will grow cold. So as we're marching closer and closer to Jesus' return, this is going to be the bigger problem. 
People are going to be lawless. And we already see that, right? How many legalists are bothering us these days? Very few. But antinomians, they're everywhere. And they are, they are a big thorn. Even in our own lives, we are antinomians. It's a thorn in our flesh. And so examples of antinomianism are everywhere in the church today. Okay, this is the false freedom that Peter was talking about. But it's everywhere in the church today. You know, not long ago, Stephen Furtick, uh, if you're offended by me naming names, get used to it. <laughs> I, I, I don't do that very often, but Stephen Furtick, he's a very popular pastor, but he actually uh, uploaded the sermon clip of his and it went viral. Shared, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of times, I don't know. But it had a little clip where he was preaching and then he said this f- statement, but it said, God broke the law for love. God broke the law for love, he said. And that went viral. And in that sermon clip, he gave an example of what he meant, but he said, imagine if you're a loving father and your kid is injured, are you going to just like obey every, you know, red light, every stoplight? No, you're going to drive right through every stoplight, right? You're going to break every law. Why? Because you're going to break the law for love because you're a loving father. You're going to get your kid to the hospital. And people are like, hmm, that makes sense, right? Yeah, maybe God does that too. Maybe he runs through red lights for me. Now, we don't know where he was coming from. Maybe he just fubbed it, right? Maybe he just kind of messed up. He didn't think it through very carefully. It wasn't a, a good, you know, sermon point. Or maybe he really believes that God breaks his law for love. I don't know. If we're more charitable, maybe we'll just say he didn't think it through all the way. He just kind of, you know, messed it up. But whether he meant it or he didn't, this is an example of preaching a kind of freedom from the law that is unbiblical, And ultimately, it says nobody free. See, he's kind of subtly undermining, again, whether he meant it or not, he's undermining obedience to God's law. See, on the cross, which is God's highest expression of love, amen, when Jesus died on the cross, there's no greater love than that. God did not break the law for love when he went to the cross. He did not. The reason why he went to the cross is because he couldn't break it. He wouldn't break the law for love. So because he's holy and he must punish sin, but because he's so loving, he wants to save us, he was caught in this pickle. It was the ultimate cosmic pickle. God's like, how do I get out of this pickle? How can I be both just and the justifier? And you guys know, if you've studied this, it's going to be, I will take the punishment. And so when he took the punishment, he did not break the law. He upheld the law. And then he punished sin as the law demanded in his own body. So in every way possible, he upheld the law and yet saved us from his judgment. And that's the genius of God. That's the wisdom of God. And for those who see that, we're humbled. We're broken, amen? We're broken by that. We're floored that Jesus would do that for us. And now, based on that understanding, now we'll keep the law. I want to follow Jesus. I'm thankful, right? I have the Holy Spirit in me now. I'm thankful to God. I love Jesus. I want to obey. It's not to get points from God or be accepted by God, but I want to obey. So one Christian writer responding to Furtick said, it's not that God broke the law for love. God has broken antinomianism for love. And I agree with that. God broke antinomianism for love on the cross. So antinomianism is a major problem. It's going to grow increasingly in the churches. It's it's a problem. And we're going to come to a close in a little bit, but sometimes you can understand something more clearly when you compare it to something else. But if you want to understand antinomianism, I believe you can understand it if you compare it to legalism. But if you compare the two, 
But antinomianism is being against God's law or rejecting God's law as a standard for your life. Again, basically doing your own thing, right? That's antinomianism. Well, legalism is trying to be justified before God by obeying the law. God, don't you see me? I'm a good person, right? I'm checking off all the boxes. Don't you accept me? Aren't I going to be in heaven with you? So you're trying to keep some standard, all these rules that you have placed in, you know, in your own life in order to be justified before God. And so when you compare these two, I think you can learn a lot. So on the surface, they look very different, don't they? They look very different. But you know, recently I picked up this book by Sinclair Ferguson. It's, a, it's an amazing book. Very, yeah, very deep. But his book, The Whole Christ, which I only began to just read recently. But in that book, he actually said antinomianism and legalism, they're actually the same. Even though on the surface they look e- exactly the opposite, they're actually the same. He said, and I quote, they are non-identical twins from the same womb or the same mother. They are non-identical twins from the same womb. In other words, they are more similar than different. In fact, he's saying they come from the same thing. And, and, and what is he talking about? What he's saying is, if, whether you are a legalist or an antinomian, okay, you're rejecting God's law. Hey, I'm just living my life, right? I don't know about all that stuff. God, I don't even know if he's real, right? I mean, what's the Bible anyway? It's just an old, outdated book. I'm living my life. Whether you're that guy or you're like, oh, Jesus, 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 right? I'm at church every Sunday. I'm checking off all my boxes. You look like everyone else, but you're really trying to get justified before God by keeping all these rules. Whether you're that guy, Sinclair says, you are coming from the same deep doubt. I'm not, and I'm not quoting him. This is just my own words. But you're coming from the same deep doubt in God's goodness and love and grace. You are doubting his goodness and love and grace. That God's law is actually his will for your life. This is actually his good and perfect will for your life. The legalist, deep down in his heart, doubts that. And the antinomian, he doubts that too. They both doubt that. So for example, the legalist doubts that deep in his heart. Why? Because, I don't know, is God really good? I, I, gotta, I gotta check off all the, the boxes. I gotta keep all the rules. I gotta obey the law if I'm gonna be accepted by God. And if at any point, if I slip up, then oh, I know God. He is a hard God. He's a hard master and he'll, he'll punish me. Maybe you'll use a different word. You'll say discipline, but in your mind is punishment. And these people, they delight in telling other believers, hey, you better shape up. You better keep all the rules. Why? Because if you don't, God's going to punish you, right? They, they, they just really take delight in telling people that. You better follow the rules too, otherwise God's going to punish you. And where's that all coming from? It is a deep fundamental doubt in God's grace, his goodness, and his love. You don't believe in it. That's why you got you to just perform, right? God, don't you see me? So Sinclair says that's the legalist. But the antinomian person, right? The anti-law person, he's the same. For him, it's more obvious. Why does he doubt God's goodness and love? Because he doesn't even want it. Like God? Bleep, right? Bleep you, God. I don't care about you. Right? All you want is rules. All you want is me to act a certain way and give up things. Forget you. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to just pursue my own career. I'm going to live my own life. I, I know what's best. You don't have what's best. And in case you don't believe me, look at the parables that Jesus told. He just dissected this so clearly. But look at the parables. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? 
It's really the parable of two sons. But remember the very end? What did the parable end with? The older son. Remember that? And what did the older son say when his younger brother, who was an idiot, went and spent all the money on prostitutes and drugs and who knows what, and then he came back crawling back to God, crawling back to the father? What did the older son say? Dad, you never threw a party for me. (laughs) The dad's like, why don't you come in? No, I don't want to. You accepted my idiot brother? You never threw a party for me. So what is that? That older son had a deep fundamental doubt in the father's goodness, grace, and love. He didn't know his dad. So that's the legalist. But then look at this other parable Jesus told. Remember the parable of the talents and the servants? Remember that? So a master was going to go on a long journey and he gave to one servant a hundred talents. Talents are coins, right? Another one he gave 50 and then the last one he gave one. And then the one who got one, he was an antinomian. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. He wants me to go and invest it and grow it. I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to do any of it. And he just buried it in the ground. And then when the master came back and he said, you wicked servant, lazy servant, why did you not do what I said? What was his answer? I know you're a hard master. Exactly like the prodigal son. But he's antinomian though. So Ferguson is absolutely right. It's coming from the same source. Both people have a fundamental doubt in God's goodness, grace, and love. And brothers and sisters, this goes deeper than just theology and doctrine. Because in this book that Ferguson wrote, The Whole Christ, he was actually uh, going through this kind of like historical situation in the Scottish church in the 1800s, but it was called the Morrow Controversy. But what's interesting about this situation in the Scottish church is that they were all orthodox. They all believed in the right things. They knew about the gospel and God's grace and God's love. They believed in all the right things. But then over time, there was a group in that Scottish church that got very legalistic, and then another group that got very lawless, antinomian. But they all had the right doctrine. And so Ferguson so insightfully said, you know, doctrine is important, but it's beyond it. It actually has to do with how you feel about God, the experiences you've had with God. So even though you believe in the right things, yeah, the gospel, God's love, but in your experience, no, God's a hard master. God doesn't love me. He always punishes me whenever I just get a little out of line. So yeah, you have orthodox beliefs. You believe in all the right things, but your experience and feelings towards God, that's gonna shoot you into legalism or antinomianism. And brothers and sisters, you're there. Why do I know that? Because I was there. And as long as you're there, you're dead. I don't want to pull punches. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. If you're an antinomian or if you are a legalist, you have no life in you. In fact, if you die like that, you might not even be in heaven because you don't know the gospel. And so Ferguson said, this goes beyond doctrine. Doctrine is involved, but it's beyond. So then brothers and sisters, in closing, then what's the only answer? It's the gospel. See, if you're a legalist, it's not like, oh, I I need a little bit more lawlessness. (laughs) A little less emphasis on, that's not the solution. If you're a lawless person, oh, I need to be a little bit more legalistic. Let's just get a little bit of more. That's more powdered sugar on the, you know what? (laughs) Don't sprinkle that powdered sugar. (laughs) What you need is something completely different. You need the gospel. Because the problem is you have a fundamental doubt in God's love and grace and goodness in your life. You just don't trust him. And so what's going to cause this trust to grow and and flourish in your heart? It's going to be the gospel. 
It's not adding a little bit more legalism in your life or some more rules. You got to look at the cross and say, you know what? If Jesus did that, then he is good. His love is infinite and unfailing. And his plan and purpose for my life, I can trust. And once you do that, now legalism, forget that. Lawlessness, forget that. I joyfully submit to God's law. I'm going to do the piano. (laughs) Not to earn an A, not to be a good person, but just because I trust my God. Amen? You know, my kids, they, they sometimes ask me about the gospel, and I, and I love giving this example because they, they get it. But I said, okay, what does the gospel say, kids? And then I, they got it right the other day. I think it was the other week. But they said, Jesus' report card is my report card. I'm like, praise God, <laughs> you got it. That's the gospel. Jesus' report card is now your report card. And Jesus' report card is awesome. It's straight A's, A pluses. Perfect A pluses. All the way through, all four years in college, he did it for you. Perfect report card. Now that's your report card. And so now once you have that, okay, here's the legalist, right? The legalist is like, oh, I don't trust God. I don't know about that, right? So I I better work hard. I'm going to drink Red Bulls every day, and I'm going to just, you know, oh, bloodshot eyes, and I'm just going to, like, my whole life is just studying, and I just got to get all my grades. And the moment I do, I'm punished. The moment I don't, I'm punished. The the lawless person is like, forget school. I hate school. I'm just going to, like, you know, skip class and just hang out. No, if you know that Jesus' report card is now your report card, you're, you'll say, no, I want to be in school. Because Jesus, you did that for me. And not only did it for me, but you gave your life so that your report card is my report card. You gave your life. It's like the mom who worked three jobs, grew sick, and then died so that she could make enough money for you to go to college. Are you going to be like, screw college, forget it. No, you're going to be like, I'm going to go to school. My mom died so that I could go to school. So now you just go to school and you work hard. Why? Not to get the grade. You already have the grade. It's because you love him. You're thankful. And this sets us free. Amen? And this, brothers and sisters, Peter said the false teachers know nothing about. They know nothing about this. They themselves are enslaved and they are leading others into that slavery of legalism or antinomianism. But Christ has set us free. Amen? So let's just bow our heads. Let's come before him. God is so good. And I pray, I pray there are people here who are going to be set free. Because I say it again, I'm talking about you. And I say that in love. But don't look around. You might be the worst legalist here. You might be the worst antinomian lawless person here. Deep in your heart, doubting God's goodness and love and grace. And if that is you, then you have no life. You have no life. God wants you to have life. He is a good God. So let's just come before him right now. Let's humble ourselves. 